the fall season. We just thank you, Lord, for the beautiful and glorious days of, of sunshine and cool mornings and, and low humidity. Lord, it is you who gives the earth its seasons, and we just thank you for this time of year where we begin to see the leaves uh, turn and the fall uh, foliage. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, for the grace of creating this earth and allowing us to be stewards in it and to have dominion over it. And Father, as we were uh, reading earlier this morning from uh, Psalm 34 as we opened up uh, worship, Lord, the psalmist calls us to trust in you. Blesses the man who, who trusts in you. And Father, that is what I want to uh, focus on this morning during our time of prayer is, is trusting in you. Lord, there are many things going on in our world, in our nation in particular. Many things that are vying for our attention, whether it's on social media or on the news. And Lord, uh, the world is calling us to trust in it. Uh, those who deny uh, God and uh, deny uh, his created order uh, are calling us to trust them. Uh, but Lord, your word calls us to call on to you, to cry out to you, to seek you. Because Lord, when we seek you, you will hear us. The world is calling us to fear, to have fear of man, to, to have fear of of disease or fear of infection or fear of, of everything. Often irrational fear. Lord, your word didn't call us to not be prudent. We're called to be wise. But we're not called to have a foolish and irrational fear where we have fear to the point where we don't put our trust in you. But rather we put our trust in in man-made institutions and, and, and created things and take our trust away from you. Lord, I pray this morning as a church and as individuals that we make our boast in you, that we magnify you and exalt your name together as the psalmist calls us to do. Because, Lord, your angels encamp or surround all those who fear you and deliver us. We're called to taste and see that you are good. And we're blessed if we trust in you. And Lord, what we often think as uh, fallen creatures is that in one hand we can uh, trust you and in the other hand we can fully trust man. But Lord, scripture testifies against that uh, foolish thinking. We're not called to put out, we're called to trust people because we have to by, by way of uh, general revelation. We, we have to trust people. We Trust whoever made our car to get into it and, and hope that it starts. Lord, we're not called to trust in man because man is fallen. Man is sinful. Man is prone to sin. Man is prone to disappoint and to, and to let us down and to deceive us and to take advantage of us. Lord, we are called to put our trust in you because you are the sovereign God. You are the one who delivers us. You are the one who, who cares for us. You are the one who made us. Your word says, it is you who have made us and not we ourselves. Lord, your word called us to fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no lack for those who fear you. 
Lord, we will not lack any good thing if we fear you, have a healthy, reverential, worshipful fear of you. Lord, those who seek you should not lack any good thing. May we as believers, you came in and, and pursued us in saving us by sending your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as a, as a return, we seek you because you sought us out. You saved us. You called us. You elected us with your electing love. It is not us who sought Christ. It is Christ who sought us. You came to seek and save those who were lost. And Lord, now that we have been found by you, may we continue to seek you, to seek your ways, to seek your truth as you have revealed it in your word. That is my prayer for our church this morning. And Lord, we pray again for our sister churches. Uh, continue to pray for ABC, their assistant pastor, their new assistant pastor and his family that they find a place to be settled in our area. Uh, for Bob, his continued uh, struggles with uh, recovery from uh, COVID-19. He continues to deal with the effects of it that you strengthen him as he continues to even persevere and do uh, pastoral ministry, pastoral counseling, and, and, and still uh, preaching the word and, and helping to shepherd uh, the flock along with uh, uh, Michael Scherer, that you strengthen them, strengthen that ministry team, strengthen their church. Uh, they've, they've lost tons of families, Lord, but they continue to, to persevere in ministry. And, and we thank you for their ministry to us throughout the years and for Bob's friendship and his ministry uh, to me uh, throughout all these years that we've known each other. We continue to pray for Grace Fellowship, Brother Carlton Weathers and the elders there, that you continue to lead those men as they lead their church to shepherd well and uh, brother Phil, a uh, redeemer also and his wife uh, candace and and their children uh, bless him and his family as they uh, continue to lead uh, redeemer well you know they've lost a lot of members too lord but we pray that you continue to persevere them in in being faithful being faithful men of god uh, christian fellowship brother anthony cook that you continue to uh, persevere him and uh, pastoral ministry as he continues to shepherd their flock uh, being a bivocational uh, pastor as I am that you strengthen them over there also and and continue to persevere them in ministry and here at the living church also Lord you've been faithful to us for 11 years and, and we thank you for it and may uh, we continue to be faithful in what you have called us to do here Lord, now we come out to the ministry of the word we pray as we uh, preach through Ezra the third chapter and looking at uh, having spiritual uh, renewal that your spirit may be with me as I, I preach uh, this message that you fill me with your spirit. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear uh, this morning as we look at a new beginning with God and what that entails. Father, may you be richly blessed by the Pope claiming of your word today in Christ's name I pray amen man let us turn to Ezra the third chapter and this morning um, the message title is a new beginning with 
God. And we're going to read this passage. It is there. It is fairly uh, short. <laughs> so Ezra 3. And of course, we know Ezra is chronicling the return of uh, the exiles uh, under King Cyrus, who was king of Persia at this time, under the leadership, uh, the people under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And last week, we looked at the list of exiles. I think it was about 50,000 of them that uh, returned. And today, we're going to see the beginning of the rebuilding of the altar of reestablishing temple uh, worship in Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David. So it says here, uh, and when the seventh month had come, this was on the heels of uh, the end of the last chapter where the people settled into uh, the land. Now, we don't know if this was seven months after that or just in the seventh month. But it says, when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then uh, Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of the Tabernacles, as it was written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, and drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, And all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites 
and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard or far off. May, may the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. I'm sure many of us in here, including myself, have pondered new beginnings. You know, most of the time that happens uh, around January the 1st of every year where, you know, where people proclaim, you know, new year, new me, you know, all those different uh, tropes and axioms that, that people use. But, uh, but even not during that time, many people just seek new beginnings. It may be when they have a certain birthday, you know, people turn 30 or 20 or 25 or 50 or 60 or whatever the case may be. Some people may say, okay, this is time to kind of uh, reset, you know, start things over. You know, uh, they may ask questions, you know, what has happened with my life? You know, when did things get off track? You know, or as the millennial saying goes, uh, this is my life now. <laughs> you, you know, some, some, some people think that way, like this is, this is my life, like this is, this is how it, it, is, it has turned out. This is not what I was expecting. I need a reset. I need to start things over. I need to find a starting point and try to, to recharge or reinvigorate my life or my emotions or whatever the case uh, may be. We look for beginnings. But the answer, the other question we should ask ourselves is, where do you start if you want a new beginning? Where do you start if you're wondering what happened? Do you start with yourself or do you start with God? And that is a very big question because your starting point matters. In our self-obsessed self Love, culture. The culture tells you to start with who? You. Love yourself more. Celebrate yourself more. Send positive vibes more. You know, the world tells you to start with you. Right? Care for yourself more. And there's nothing wrong with self-care. It's the world's way of looking at it that is wrong because the world's view of self-care means you care for no one but yourself. You, you, you become a worshiper and idolater where you worship yourself. 
and you want other people to participate in worshiping you. But the world says, look at you, worship you, praise you, adore you. Self-love is the best love. I've, I've seen that said before. You can't love others if you don't learn to love yourself first. That's what the world shouts, okay? So, you know, if, if you want this new beginning, you have to start with yourself. You have to start manifesting. That's the new thing now, the, the new age thing. You start manifesting those things that you, you want to happen. It's the old remixed way of speaking things into existence. You, you have to manifest yourself. Now, you'll, you'll see that word out there in the culture a lot, especially if you spend a lot of time on Instagram, just, just looking and browsing like I do, just to see what the world is, 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 is trying to teach uh, us to do. That is all about you. It starts with you. You are the one who can enact change in your life. You are the one who can change your circumstances. You are the one who can help you to live a better life or uh, as one famous false preacher said, live your best life now. The world says you, it begins with you. Look in the mirror, you're the problem. You're the solution to your problem. So what do you begin to do? You begin to become an idolater. You begin to worship yourself. You begin to worship your emotion. You begin to worship your thoughts. Because after all, you're the most important person, right? You're the most important person to you. That's where the world tells us to start. And self-love, we often use it through other means. We, and sometimes we can withdraw. I don't want to be around people. I want to be by myself. Why? Because I don't like people. Why? Because I guess you're a better sinner than they are. <laughs> you know? Uh, no. But, you know, some people withdraw. They not just become introverts, but they withdraw from society. They become recluses. They don't go out much. They, they don't like being around people because, you know, they think that's how I need to start off. Just get away from everybody. Get away from it all. It's not the wrong with retreating here and there, but if it's for that reason, that's not... Uh, a, a way that glorifies God because that is not how God created us. And then some people try to get a new start by looking to other created things. Some people uh, uh, get pets, whether it's a dog or a cat or an iguana or a snake or, or a bird, and, and they treat them as surrogates. You know, I hear people say uh, they show more unconditional love than people do, but but that is making people down to the level of, of animals when we're the ones that are made in the image of God. It's not that we can't have, I mean, we have a dog, um, but I can't look to that dog as a surrogate to replace my wife or, or to replace her affections for me and uh, replace my children because I'm lacking, uh, you know, in, in some area, and I'm using that as a surrogate to do that. That's not what they were made for. We were made to to be good stewards over them and have dominion over them, but not to put them on the same plane as, as uh, those who are made in the image of God. But some people look to create things. They look to relationships for that new start, for that new beginning. And the thing is, 
none of these none of these things I mentioned are inherently sinful. We take good things and make them God things. And that is the heart of what idolatry is. It takes a good thing, something that God, everything that God made, he said that it was what? It was good. But what do we do as fallen man? We take those good things that God has made and we turn them into God things. We make them the ultimate things. And that's what happens when you make something ultimate. It becomes an idol to you. And you feel as if if it was taken from you, you could not live. You can't do without it. That sounds very sentimental and very uh, strong emotionally, but that is the heart of idolatry, that people can't let go of their idols. You try to take their idols from them, and they don't know what to do. All that starts with self-love, where you begin to worship yourself. So we can't start with self. We can't seek answers with self. So where do we start? We start with God. Everything begins and ends with him. When Jesus said in the book of Revelation, as John wrote, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That encompasses not just creation, that encompasses every single facet of everything that God has done. Jesus is the alpha of everything. He is the alpha of how we have a new beginning. He's the author of that. So the big idea this morning is in order to have a fruitful and profitable new beginning with God, the cross must be central. The world must drive our worship. We must rejoice in the Lord and remember the present work of God. Those are the four principles we're going to look at this morning from this passage. And we'll see it fleshed out. So the first principle is rebuilding the centrality of the cross. The cross must be central. So if you look at this passage as we read it, the altar was being rebuilt. The altar had been destroyed, you know, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, the altar was destroyed with it. But the altar was necessary because on it were all the sacrifices made as prescribed by the Lord. In Deuteronomy 12, uh, verses 5 through 6, when God gave them a prescribed place of worship. God says here, but you shall seek the place where uh, the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So God had a prescribed place of worship for Israel, and for them it was the temple. And in the temple was the altar 
of God. In fact, when you look at this passage that we read, the most mentioned sacrifice in this passage is the burnt offering. It is mentioned frequently in this passage because that was the way of worship. Now, what is the burnt offering? You've been here on Wednesday nights. You know, we've been studying through the book of Leviticus. And the burnt offering is found in the very uh, first chapter of Leviticus. And it had a purpose. So here it says in Leviticus 1, the Lord called to Moses, told him to speak to the children of Israel, that when one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. And then he goes on to give instructions for the different offerings. First for a bull, and then a sheep or a goat, and then birds. He gave the prescriptions of how they were to be slaughtered and how their blood was to be sprinkled on uh, the altar and what to do with what was left over. And what was the purpose of the burnt offering? The purpose of the burnt offering was atonement for sins. Their sins had to be atoned for. To make atonement. God said in Leviticus 1 and 4, Then shall he, the priest, put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Atonement is to pay a penalty for. So that is what the burnt offering was for. It was to make a, a, a penalty or pay the penalty or make atonement for the sins of the people. And what was offered? If you look at Leviticus uh, 1, verses 3 through 9, it was a bull. And the bull was for the wealthy uh, Israelites. Those who were wealthy had bulls in their livestock. And all of us have seen bulls. Bulls are very, uh, they're big cows. They're huge. And they're also very expensive. That's why Angus uh, beef is more expensive than your your regular uh, uh, beef that you find because the bull is very expensive. So the wealthy uh, use bulls. And then in verses 10 through 13 of uh, Leviticus 1, these are like the, the middle class people, so to speak, that they have an unblemished uh, male sheep or a, or a goat. And then the poor were able to give uh, turtle doves or young pigeons for their offering. You'll find that in verses 14 through 17 in Leviticus 1. So these three classes of offering uh, dealt with the three classes of people in Israel. And God did that so that every Israelite would have a chance to give an offering for the atonement of their sins. So what does this all mean with the burnt offering that we see in this passage? In order to properly worship God, we must go to and through Christ and the cross. The burnt offerings were a sweet aroma to the Lord. You see that in Leviticus 1 and 9. They were a sweet, as the King James says, a sweet-smelling savor or a sweet aroma 
to the Lord. That means that the Lord was pleased with those sacrifices when they were altered. He was pleased with the burnt offering. He was pleased with the offering of his son, Jesus, on the cross. Because the sacrificial system, again, pointed to the work of Christ on the cross. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 and 10, yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush Christ on the cross. Why? Because he was atoning for our sins. So you see the sweet smelling savor of the burnt offering. It points to the sweet sacrifice of Christ in atoning for our sins. The sacrificial animals pointed ahead to God's perfect once for all sacrifice for sins, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The complete and final burnt offering was Christ. And his offering of his body on the cross appeased God. It appeased the wrath of God. That's why 1 John 2 and 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That is a theological word that in essence means that he was the appeasement of God's wrath. You know what it means to appease somebody, to, to, to put them at peace? And that's what Christ's death did. It appeased the wrath of God against sin. Why? Because someone had to pay. Someone had to pay the price for our sins. And who was that someone? Only Christ. We can't bear the weight of our sins, people. We're not called to. It is an impossible task. Why? Our sins are so great that God was willing to crush his own son for our sins. That's how great our sin is. That God was willing to crush his own son. That's how weighty our sins are. So do we think that we can bear the weight of our own sins? If No, only Christ could do that. So you see all these sacrifices that these burnt offers, they had to point to something greater. The sacrifice of Christ removed the sins from those who would be reconciled to God the Father just as those sacrifices did in the Old Testament. That's why they had to rebuild that altar. That's why that was the first thing they did when they got there. They started rebuilding it. And another thing to note is we cannot properly worship God until we understand the why of worship. There's a why to it. Not just a who we worship, but there's a why. The why of worship is Christ's sacrifice. That's the why. Had Christ not died for our sins on the cross, we would have no means in which to worship God the Father. Why, why, why do we need to gather together in public worship if Christ had not died for our sins? We, we'll be doing it for no reason. Had he not died for our sins on the cross, we would have no means in which to worship God. And also, we cannot worship God unless our sins are forgiven, which also happened on the cross. Our sins were forgiven on the cross. The writer says in Hebrews 9 and 22, and according to the law, 
almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That is why blood was shed on that altar in the Old Testament system, and that is why Christ's blood was shed on that tree. That was the only way our sins could be remitted. Remitted means to pay a debt off. You get a, you know, in old days, you got a letter of remittance, which said that your debt was paid in full. It was paid off. So without the blood being shed, our sin debt would not be paid off. We will still owe the penalty for our sin, which is what? What's the wages of sin? Death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. We will die in our sins and be eternally separated from God the Father in hell. So without that blood being shed on that altar, Israel's sins would not have been forgiven in the wilderness and in the temple, the days of the temple. Without the shedding of the blood of Christ, our sins would not be forgiven. So we can't worship God unless our sins are forgiven. None of our good works can earn God's forgiveness. There's nothing good that we can do. They do good things to, to try to assuage their, their conscience. You know, assuage meaning to make yourself feel good about doing something. They, their, their conscience, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts them. Jesus said the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin. They're under the conviction of the Lord to repent and turn to him. But instead, they, as Paul said in Romans 1, they deny him, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but yet they still have their guilty conscience. And what do they do? They still try to do good works. They, they give to charity. They give to Operation Christmas Child during Christmas time. Or, or, you know, they do all these good things to try to assuage their guilt that they just can't shake. They, they go to alcohol. They go to drugs. They go from relationship to relationship. They go out and, and buy bigger things and more ex expensive things, and they, they seek the praise and applause of man simply because their sins are not forgiven. But they're not worshiping the one who can do that. So none of our good works can earn God's forgiveness. We either put our trust in the perfect burnt offering God provided or we must pay for our own sins by being eternally separated from God in the lake of fire. Those are the only two choices we have. You make one choice, you've already negated the other. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are we going to put our trust in the perfect burnt offering that God provided who is Jesus Christ? Trust in him for salvation. And as we're saved, continue to trust in the work that he did for us in accomplishing our salvation. Or are we going to trust ourselves and end up paying for our own sins in hell for all eternity? Hell is not a place where bad people go. Hell is a place where people who have rejected Christ go. It's a difference. Because all of us are bad. All of us are sinners. The Bible tells us there's none who does good. No, not one. But those who have rejected Christ and his offer of salvation that has been freely given to all who believe. 
when they reject that, they're going to pay. And the eternality of hell, the fact that it is eternal, think about this. Why is hell eternal? Because that's how much our sins cost. Hell is punishment for our sins. That's why those who believe in Christ have what? Eternal life. That life in Christ is abiding with us forever. And those who live a life of sin, guess what? They're going to pay for those sins. They're not going to pay for 100 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years or until they cry uncle. No. They're going to pay for those sins forever. That is how expensive the wages of sin is. That you have to pay that debt for all of eternity. In the lake of fire and sulfur. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where there will be eternal conscious torment. It will be felt. That's a lie. There's nothing in scripture that points to that. No, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be weeping. There's going to be sorrow. But God provided a way out of that by shedding the blood of his son. So when we see this sacrifice being offered on the altar here in this passage, it is all pointing to is restoring worship by means of of the word. So that's what a new beginning begins. But first it begins with making the cross central, the work of Christ central. What has Christ done for me? What has Christ done on my behalf? Do we meditate on that enough to see what he did? And then secondly, by means of the word. Many people, sadly to say many Christians, seek change out. The written word of God was a powerful tool used by God to accomplish his redemptive work. Look at verse 2. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. As it is what? Written in the law of of Moses, the man of God. The written word was a powerful tool used by God to accomplish this purpose. They remembered the law. They remembered Leviticus and what it said about worshiping God. Whenever we stray from the word of God in our public or private worship, or in our life, we are prone to stray away from God into false doctrine, into false practices, and into all manner of sin and evil. That's what Israel did. That's how they ended up in exile. We read that a couple weeks ago. They strayed away. God told them uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, toward the end, the blessings and curses, I think it was Deuteronomy 28, that this is what will happen Bless you will be blessed if you obey, and you will be cursed if you disobey. And this is what will happen. You will be driven into a foreign land. You will be scattered. They forgot God. They rebelled against 
God. And Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 about what happens when we uh, desert the word. He says here in 1 Timothy 4, the great apostasy that takes place, that's taking place now. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits. That's what false teaching is, that people are trying to bring into the church. Well, I would say have brought into the church. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared like a hot iron. He talks about all these things they do, forbidden to marry, commanded to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So he was telling him, in the latter times, let the last days begin when Christ uh, ascended to heaven. So we've been in the last days since then. Some are going to depart from the faith. They're going to believe the doctrines of demons. And that's what false teaching is. False teaching is the doctrine of demons. It is demonic. It is demonically sourced. It is demonically influenced. It is demonically empowered. Anything that does not put Christ as central is demonic. It is not from God. It cannot be from God because it takes the focus off of God. But whenever we stray from the word of God, that is what happens. The standard by which we should measure and evaluate everything in regards to public and private worship of God in all of our life must be the word of God. We must make the word of God center to our worship. Because when we stray, what happens? We go into despair. We go into great discouragement. We, in our insanity, <laughs> expect those things not to happen. But yet we neglect the word. What do we expect is going to happen when we neglect the word? When we neglect the prayer closet? Uh, the the, the uh, reformers call it the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, scripture reading, fellowshipping with the saints, uh, the communion of the saints, you know, being uh, one anothering together. You know, those are the ordinary means of grace that God gives us as believers to grow in grace. And, 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 and we neglect all those things. What do we think is going to happen to our spiritual life? But yet we think that everything will still do what? Go well. When we neglect those things. But what we see here in this passage is that the word is central. They did this according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The standard by which we evaluate everything again should be God's word. The only worship that is acceptable to God must be like him through his word in order to reflect his glory and his attributes. And the Jews, the Israelites rather, they restored worship as it was written. If you look at verse 4, 
They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. They stuck to the word. They restored worship by meaning of the word. You can't desire a new beginning without the word. It is God who gives us our meaning and our purpose. It is his word that shows us what it is. It's not out there in the world. The world will show you how to reject God and to deny God. The world will be more than happy to show you that, how to live a life without God. That's what the world does. That's what the world is for. But the word shows us God's purpose for our life. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says in answering the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is what God created us for, to glorify him, not to glorify ourselves. Not to try to change ourselves apart from him. No, God created us to worship him by means of his word, what he has prescribed in scripture. And that's what the Israelites did here. They restored worship as it was written. The Feast of Tabernacles or the, uh, the Feast of Booths, as, as it is sometimes called, they did that according to scripture. They weren't renegades and wanting to do things on their own. Why? They wanted to do it God's way because they knew that that's how that work would be blessed. And we have to do the same thing. The reformers call it the uh, regulative principle of worship. And that is how we worship God here at our church. And I'll explain what the regulative principle is. Uh, is it holds that we worship God in the manner that he has commanded us in his word the Westminster, Westminster Confession says the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in holy scripture. And we hold to this as a church because we take the Bible seriously. It is God's word that governs how we worship. That's why we don't have mood lighting here at our church. You know, you don't see soft blues and, and, and soft yellow lights and and dim the lights as, as some churches do, you know, have, have all this. And those things are not inherently sinful, but the point is, what's the purpose of that? We don't have mood lighting. We don't, uh, we, you know, we was at one church one time where whenever they went to prayer, they, they turned the lights off. And the preacher said, this sets the atmosphere for prayer. Those, those are not things that are prescribed in the word. So why add them to corporate worship? The atmosphere of worship is always set because God is always present. We don't have to do anything special to, in some ways, conjure up the presence of God. And that's what a lot of churches do. 
They try to do special and magical things in the service to, uh, as, as they say, we've been part of church. They usher in the presence of God as if God needs an invitation to be in church with us. When you add those things to corporate worship, you get away from things that scripture has prescribed. What has scripture prescribed? Uh, the preaching of the word, prayer, uh, confession of sin, those are all things that we are called to do in the word. We do it corporately as believers. Paul admonished Timothy to do what? Preach the word. You had the prophets of the Old Testament who proclaimed God's truth. They sang psalms. That's why we sing in church. They responded. They did responsive readings, as we're going to see here in a little bit. We do responsive reading. We respond to the work of God and what he has done for us. We have doxologies. Doxologies are responses to God's revealed truth. We see those especially in the New Testament, in Paul's writings. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly according to all that we may ask a thing, according to the power that works in you. That's uh, Ephesians 3, 20 21. That's a doxology. Paul was writing in response to God calling us to be in him through Christ. That's, that, that, that's what we do. So when we're in the worship, that's why we sing a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Blessings of what? Prayer. Blessings of the word. Blessings of confessing our sins. Blessings of the songs that we're singing. We're praising God because it is from him that all blessings flow. So that's why we do those things. That's the regulative principle of worship. We we seek to do what is prescribed in God's word. We want to do it by the book as much as possible. And people say, well, you got to spice it up a little bit. And that's why when a lot of churches go down a rabbit path, or the rabbit hole rather, and they start adding all sorts of things to church, and it becomes more entertainment. It's not that worship should be uh, boring, and I don't even like using that word, but the problem is we're coming to worship God and we shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to get up here and do cartwheels to get your attention. I mean, it would look bad anyway. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't even be able to do half a cartwheel, but, but the point is we have to do gymnastics in order to worship God together. I always remember this. I said this a few weeks ago. Our emotions are driven by theology. Our theology is not driven by our you know, emotions. Whatever we think of God is going to drive our emotional response to God. If you're in the course of your week, no matter how hard the grind is, even in that grind, you're still focusing on God called me to this job. It's hard, but I'm working to the Lord. That produces joy. In work. Because you're thinking about the fact that this is what God called me to. I'm being a, a steward. God has gifted me to do this job. I'm able to do it. I want to do it to his glory. As Paul said in Colossians 3. We work as unto God and not unto who? Man, when you're working unto God, that produces joy in you. It don't matter how bad your boss is. All of us probably have terrible bosses. But that should not affect how we work for the Lord. 
because we're letting our emotions drive our theology as opposed to our theology, what we think of God, drive our emotional response. And that's why when we worship God in church, according to what he has prescribed, that should bring us joy. That, Lord, we're worshiping you as your word has commanded. And that's what brought these people joy. That brought them joy. Which leads to our next principle. Rejoicing in the testimony of the work in the house of God is necessary for a new beginning. What is God doing in his house? The Jews, the Israelites, Israel, they reflected on God's work in rebuilding the foundation. And their response was one of rejoicing. The laying of the foundation confirmed their faith in God. It confirmed that they were excited. Verse 5, it says here that they offered the regular burnt offerings. They offered free will offerings willingly to the work of the Lord. And then look what happened in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord and the priests stood in their apparel and the Levites and the sons of Asaph. That's one of the songs that we've been reading here lately are the, the uh, sons of Asaph wrote those. According to the ordinance of David, they did what they sang responsibly praising and giving thanks to, the God, to God. Why? Because their foundation was laid. They reflected on God's work. These were exiles who came out of captivity to a city that was laid siege by the Babylonians that was destroyed. And they came back and they built their foundation and it was built out of rugged rocks, unfinished rocks. The laying of the foundation confirmed their faith in God. And why was that? Because God had promised restoration after the exile. If you look at Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, this is uh, where God had promised them that they would come back. So guess what? They knew the word. They knew that God was true and faithful to his promise. And just for context here, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 29 dealt with what God would do in scattering them. If you look at verse 28 of chapter 29, the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and wrath and in great indignation and cast them into the other land as it is uh, to this day. So uh, that's on the heels of this. But look at what happens in chapter 30. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, all these curses, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So in other words, they're in exile, and they're thinking about all these blessings and all these curses. They're thinking about those things, what God said. 
He says, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. This is still in verse 2. According to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. This is a thousand or so years before the events in the book of Ezra. Only God can make that happen. That the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity, verse 3, and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He shall prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So guess what he did? He brought them back. And when they were praising God at the laying of the foundation, they thought about this. They remembered the word. They remembered the work of the Lord. They remembered what God said that he was going to do. Now the foundation of the temple was a, a typology of Christ, as a type of Christ as the foundation of his church. And, and this is why we rejoice over Christ. And what is typology? Uh, theologically speaking, let me get this definition here that I have in my uh, notes. Uh, typology is where institutions or systems in scripture uh, speak uh, to Christ. An institution, a place or a thing that gets repeated and repeated and ratcheted up until you expect there to be something bigger that brings the pattern to a uh, climax. So you keep seeing certain things being repeated in the Old Testament. Uh, those are what we call typologies. They are called types. So what that means is the foundation of the temple was a type. Because our Christian faith is built on the foundation of who? Christ. Paul says there's no other foundation than that which was laid, who is Jesus Christ. What did Christ tell Peter? Upon this what? Rock. This foundation. Petros. That's what Peter comes from. The word Petros. That's where we get the word petroleum from because oil comes from rock. So Jesus was telling him on this rock, on this foundation, I will build what? My church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So Christ is that foundation. So when that foundation was built, when it was settled in place, they rejoiced. Just as we rejoice over our foundation. When we gather together as a church, we're rejoicing because we have a firm foundation. There's a hymn called How Firm a Foundation. And it's speaking of Christ. Christ is the foundation on which the church stands. Christ is the foundation on which our new beginning happens. There's no other foundation. You know, it's like the old hymn that says, On Christ, the solid rock I sand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. You ever been to the beach before, and you stand uh, where the tide comes in, and you're, you're standing with your, your feet in the sand, and the water comes in, and that sand begins to shift a little bit? That's what happens when you don't stand on Christ. Your, your foundation is not, it's not firm. So that's why this foundation being laid was very important. So how was God's work praised among the Jews? 
They sung a song of praise. And what was that song of praise? For he is what? Good. For his mercy endures forever toward Israel. It was a call and response to be exact. One would say for he is good. And everybody would say for his mercy endures forever. There were similar songs that were sung in Israel as a uh, response to uh, the Lord's work. Some of them are, are like Psalm 106 and Psalm 107. Those were uh, call and response uh, songs uh, that they sung. Uh, J.P. Lane said this in his commentary on uh, verse 11. He says, they responded to one another in responsive songs. While one choir sang, praise the Lord for he is good, the other answered for his mercy endures forever. They were songs of praise as Psalm 106, 107, 108, and 136 that they struck up. So these were call and response songs because that's what the psalms are. They are songs. And if you look at Psalm 106, just as a cursory look, you'll see the call and response uh, take place. That's why it's written as it is. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then they will say, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare his praise? Then the other one will say, bless are those who keep justice and who does righteousness at times. Then the choir will say, remember me, O Lord, with your favor, for you have taught your people. And then the other will say, oh, visit me with your Salvation. Those are call and response songs. That's why they are very long. And then Psalm 107 is a one of thanksgiving also. So what this shows is that's how they rejoiced to the Lord in call and response. And Psalm 136 is definitely one. It begins, oh, good thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, good thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, good thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. So y'all see the call of response there? That's what kind of psalm that is. It's not just repetition for the sake of repetition. This is what they did in rejoicing to the Lord. They did a call and response. We don't sing call and response songs, but we do do a responsive reading where one person reads and everyone else uh, uh, responds to that reading. So what we must know from this is that in good and bad, in poverty and riches, in feast and famine, God is worthy to be praised. These people came back to a destroyed temple and a destroyed altar. They, I'm sure they were discouraged in spirit, but guess what? They came to worship God despite that. His work is being done even in the hard times in your life. Whatever hard times you're enduring in your life right now, Christian, guess what? God is at work in your life. Matthew Henry said this about the song they sang. He says, Everlasting hymn which will never be out of date and to which our tongue shall never be out of tune. God is good 
and his mercy endures forever is the burden of Psalm 136, which I just read. He says, let all the streams of mercy be traced to the fountain. He's talking about Christ. Whatever our condition is, let this encourage you. He says, whatever our condition is, how many soever our griefs and fears, let it be on that God is good. And whatever fails, that his mercy fails not. Let this be sung with application as here. Not only his mercy endures forever, but it endures forever toward Israel. Israel when captives in a strange land and strangers in their own land. However it be, yet God is good to Israel. Good to us. Let the reviving of the church's interest when they seem dead be ascribed to the continuance of God's mercy forever. For therefore the church continues. I think about our own church that has endured. Why? Because our God endures forever. It is God who causes our church to endure. When the cross is central, friends, God and his word is honored in our worship. And we have cause to rejoice in the work he does among his people. That is why we rejoice. Even in the midst of sorrow of discouragement we still know that God is what good you know people say that cliche God is good all the time and all the time God is good do we really believe that do we really apply that that when things are not good that God is still good that's what this teaches us and our last principle this is a good one we must remember the present work of God. You look at the end of this chapter, verse 12. Many of the priests and Levites, who are uh, heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple. Uh, this, was, this was approximately 50 years after um, the exile. It started in 586. This is around 536 now. It says 70 years, but 70 years includes the completion of the temple that marked the 70 years of exile being over. But this was around 50 years after the exile. So some of those men were probably in their 70s. Some of them were probably babies. Some of them were probably in their 80s. That came back, it says here, they remembered the first temple. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. The old men who cried remembered the past glory of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was glorious. It was very ornate. It was made with the finest of wood and the finest of uh, gold and silver. It was a glorious temple. And these older men, they remembered the past glory of Solomon's temple in all of its splendor. They were nostalgic over what once was. And in their eyes, the new temple that was being built could not compare to the old temple. God said this to his people. This was around the, the same time the book of Haggai was written during this time. Haggai 2 and 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? 
in comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? So the people, those elders, saw this new temple as nothing in comparison to the old temple. The more important question to answer is, who has despised the day of small beginnings? That's Zechariah 4 and 10 who prophesied during this time also. Sentimentality over what was once, I'm sorry, sentimentality over what once was blinded the uh, elders from seeing the glory of the new temple. Sentimentality blinding. They were sentimental. And it blinded them to what was going on now. And the Lord rebuked them for such an attitude. That's what we see in Haggai, the second chapter. God said, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. He told them that he would be with them. The glory of the new temple will far exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. God said that in verse 9 of Haggai, the second chapter, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. They were lamenting the old temple when there was something better that God was doing. In the present. In the present. God wanted them to see the new work that he was doing. But they were still stuck on the old. How many times do we really think about the past? And we lament the past. We're slaves to the past. I was there at one time. Early on in my Life as a Christian, I was a very angry young man because of, of, uh, of, of, you know, things I had to deal with growing up. But God showed me how to put those things behind. That was my past. I can't, at the age of 50, keep looking back to when I was 13, 14, 15 years old and, and still get angry about it. What sense does that make? But that's what I did. We can be slaves to the past. These old men, they were slaves to the glory of the old temple. But God told them that the latter temples would be greater than the former. In other words, men, suck it up and get to work. That's what he was telling them. Stop dwelling on the past temple. That temple is destroyed. They came back. I'm sure they wept when they saw the ruins that Jerusalem was in. But God was telling them, have no fear. I am with you. Rebuild this temple. We must not neglect the present work of God. What is God doing now in my life? What is God doing now in the living church? There were times personally as a pastor here at this church where I lamented uh, things that happened in the past. I, I couldn't no longer be a slave to that. 
I sought counsel for it from, uh, from Bob and Ryan in particular because he dealt with the same thing when he was at Redeemer. He had a lot of families that left, and he was very discouraged by that. It, it wasn't for anything that he did wrong. He was just obeying the Bible, the same here. But he was very discouraged, and I was very discouraged. I was very discouraged. It was very hurtful, especially the way in which it was done. But it doesn't hurt now to talk about it because that was in the past. What is God doing now is what I had to learn to focus on. And that's what we have to do in our life. What is God doing now? God's work is not finished. Paul said in Philippians 1 and 6 that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the coming of Christ. God redeems our past. Wallowing and getting sentimental over past mistakes, past regrets, past sins that have already been covered by the blood of Christ. It robs us of the joy of seeing the present work of God in your life. If you keep dwelling on those things, you will never see what God is doing now. You won't. And that's actually pride. It's sinful pride because you're saying, God, you're not doing anything in my life worthy of me paying attention. I like what you did back then. You're not doing anything now. As if God is not eternal. As if God somehow stops being God in our life. As if he's not sovereign over us. That he does something and doesn't complete it. That he's somehow not the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. As the writer in Hebrews attests to. No. When we look back doing that it's, 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 and, and dwell on it. It's, it's sin. It's neglecting what God to see what God is doing right now. And that's what these men did. They wept with a loud voice. They lamented loudly. But we must know that God's work is not finished. The past is a cruel slave master. I'll say that again. The past is a cruel slave master. The past will keep you in slavery. Dwelling in the past will keep you enslaved to the past. As a church, we can't dwell in the past. As individuals, we can't dwell in the past. In our marriages, we can't dwell in the past. What is God doing now? And we ought to rejoice in it as they did. Amen? As we finish here, uh, let's skip forward a couple of slides and go to our applications and just get past that. I'll get back to that next week. Just remember this next one. Okay. All right. We think about what we must do. New beginnings. The cross must be central. We live a cross centered life. Christ has to be central. His work on the cross has to be central. Let the word of God order our worship. Are we worshiping God privately and publicly according to what God has prescribed in his word? Are we seeing God as his word reveals him? Look for ways to rejoice in God's goodness and mercy. 
For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever toward me. Look for ways to rejoice in God's goodness and mercy. We look forward in everything that he's done. We look forward in his works of creation. We look forward in what we know of him in his word. You know, it's just, it could be something just as simple. When I walked out the house Wednesday morning to go running before work, I just said out loud, Lord, this is a beautiful morning. Because it was. The humidity was low. There was not a cloud in the sky. It was just so, hasn't God given us some great days here lately? We can rejoice in that. Lord, thank you for your wonderful creation. Thank you for creating such a beautiful day. And we can rejoice in the goodness of God in his created works. And that takes the focus off of me and puts it on God. And lastly, live, a, live rather with God's present work in view. Don't be a slave to the past. The past is there. We can't erase it. We can't erase it. It happened. It's real. It is actual. But we cannot neglect the present work of God in our lives. Let us pray. Father, perhaps there are church members in here or those who will hear this sermon when it's uploaded that are looking for new beginnings or wondering what has happened with their their life, asking questions what happened. And Lord, my prayer is that as they listen to this sermon and reflect on the truths in it, that we see that we must rebuild the centrality of the cross in our hearts, that the cross must be central. That we can't do it without the ministry of the word of God because the word of God is a powerful tool used by you. And then, Lord, we should work to rejoice in the work yourself, in your house, and in our lives. And, Lord, to remember your present work, to not be blinded by our past or be slaves to our past. Well, let us see the ways that you have prescribed us to do these things and to do them to your glory, to live a cross-centered life, to let the word order our worship, to look for ways to rejoice in your goodness and mercy, and to live with your present work in view. And Father, I also pray this morning, as we look at your goodness, that we, uh, those who are, are not believers, that Paul says in Romans 2, that uh, know you not that the goodness of the Lord leads to repentance. May those who hear this message, who see your goodness, repent and believe on Christ and be saved from the wrath to come. Lord, bless this word this morning and bless our fellowship meal as we get ready to partake it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.